Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. I welcome you to Jay Talk, and we're live midnight to five. And as you probably know, since I've done such massive promotion, and so has Anthony, that Anthony Mitchell Samarco is in Boston's favorite um, historian, and maybe even America's favorite. I don't oh, know. Well, I mean, why not, right? Well, thank you for having me, and that was a very nice introduction. <laughs> and tonight we are going to focus on the North End, and most specifically your book. Done with uh, photographs by Charlie Rosenberg, a then and now book, Boston's North End. Well, it is fun. This is a wonderful thing about the neighborhoods of Boston. And, you know, the North End is something that you know, I've known as a child. My family had lived there prior to 1921. But I think one of the concepts is the North End is truly a neighborhood that many people perceive of as, you know, an immigrant base. In the 1840s, it was Irish. In the 1860s, German Jews and then Russian Jews. By the latter part of the 19th century, you know, Italians. But I think in some ways when you realize it, that the North End by the turn of the 20th century was one of the most densely settled areas of Boston, but it also was a place where 21 languages and dialects were spoken. So it was not just Irish, German, Russian, and Italian, but there was a melange of people that included everybody from probably Western Europe as well as the Mediterranean. I go quite a bit uh, because it's now on the way to work. In fact, it was there today and remarked today that this is a national treasure, this neighborhood. It's in spite of pressures to uh, change, to gentrify, to uh, get chain stores in there, it's still pretty good as far as a, a distinct uh, flavor. Well, it is a flavor, not just a residential neighborhood, but a commercial overlay. And it works fairly well. The only thing is, if I lived in the North End, I would probably be a little bit more um, traveling on weekends if the Italian feasts continued. I love them. And I think one of the concepts is, you know, there's something that attract thousands of people on the weekends during the summer months. We always went to the Feast of St. Anthony, which was the last Sunday of uh, August. And, you know, we'd see people that we hadn't seen, not just in a year, but sometimes in a decade. And it was something that was kind of fun. And with the uh, Roma band leading us through the streets and the procession of St. Anthony, the statue, it was really quite fun. It was this overlay of the north end of our grandparents along with not only us, but now our 
grandchildren. So it's like four generations, five generations. You mentioned the festivals. What are some of the major festivals? Well, the Fisherman's Feast, the Feast of St. Anthony, the uh, St. Lucy's Feast. These are things that were brought to the New World by the people from Italy that not only had these patron saints of the towns from which they had come, but the patron saint itself was something that was someone who was not only revered, but became something of a, almost like a club. One would raise money for charitable purposes. So these sodalities and societies would actually be something that allowed you not only to be a part of, to contribute to, but attend these feasts and participate by giving money towards it. But they also took charitable donations that would benefit the community, and it still does to this day. But it's a great honor not only to bear the saints through the streets, and this is something today that uh, 50, 60 years later that I've been going, I look at as something that's a lot that is similar and there's a lot that's evolved. And one of the things that's evolved, it's actually more of a community event than anything I've ever seen in my life. People of all walks of life, all ages, all races. And that's part of what the North End is all about. Many people perceive it as an Italian-American community. But it's so much more than that. It's a place that not only has fine restaurants, wonderful pubs and bars. Bakeries. Bakeries. We actually sampled the wonderful uh, St. Joseph's Zapolis, which are a major feature of the St. Uh, Joseph's Day, March 19th, but you know, you also begin to realize the overlay of history as well. So it's a great place to visit. A lot of neighborhoods have young urban professionals come in and it kind of breaks up families. Families move out to the suburbs. These other people move in. But as I walk around there, I get a sense that families have hung around and there's a, there are perhaps more family connections still in the North End than in other communities. Would you agree? There are many family connections in the North End. I had, you know, as I mentioned, my uh, paternal family had moved to Medford in 1921, but there were still cousins that actually lived in the North End even as late as the 1990s. Not only did they live there, but they lived in the apartments of their parents, which had not yet been condo, but they owned the entire building. But today, when you talk about urban professionals living in these communities, all right, granted, it's very accessible not just to downtown Boston and offices, but you've got the waterfront. You've also got all the amenities of the city. But the North End is truly like a, almost a miniature version of Naples or Rome. One can not only have freshly brewed coffee in the morning and fresh breads and pastries, the things that you know are typical of any neighborhood, so to speak, of a fine bakery, but it's something that you could simply walk to for just a block and you find these wonderful things. When I go there, I always seem to hit the same bakeries, but as I was walking the other evening in the North End, I remember back 50 years ago to a bakery on Cooper Street, which has now been converted into a condominium, and I remembered the widow who sold the bread that we purchased every Saturday that we went to the North End. But then I realized a lot of these places evolve, but there are still the mainstays, wonderful restaurants, wonderful bakeries, and you know these wonderful places that still kind of complete our image of what the North End is all about. Now you have your book, Boston's North End, and it starts out with Cops Hill. 
Right. Tell us about Copps Hill. Well, you know, Copps Hill is a place that everybody knows of because of the burial ground. And Copps Hill Burial Ground is one of the three oldest burial grounds in downtown Boston. But, you know, Copps Hill was once known as Windmill Hill and Guinea Hill. People don't realize the evolution of a city sometimes involves different names. But at one time, William Copp had a windmill at the top of the hill. You know, a windmill was something that actually took advantage of the winds, and of course the blades would turn, and it was a grist mill, and they would grind corn. But by the period of the later, latter part of the 17th and 18th century, it was also referred to as Guinea Hill. And many people don't realize that it was the largest congregation of African Americans in Boston in that period. Prior to the Revolution, many of them lived in and around Guinea Hill. And Guinea Hill was for Guinea or the west coast of Africa. So it was a colloquialism. But on the other hand, many people did live there. It would eventually be the area that they would move from to the northern slope of Beacon Hill and then eventually in the 20th century towards Roxbury and Dorchester. The northern slope of Beacon Hill is the side that faces Cambridge Street? Correct. It's where Joy Street goes exactly. up? Exactly. Okay. And, you know, the African Meeting House was at the crest of uh, what is today Joy Street on Smith Lane. It was a wonderful place, but it was also the fact that they saw this area in the north end as a, an area that was where many of them lived. But, you know, the North End had this wonderful artisan class. And, you know, Paul Revere, everyone thinks of as the midnight ride of Paul Revere, a silversmith. He was a man who made dentures for President George Washington. Not very good dentures, <laughs> by all accounts. <laughs> I've actually seen the walrus, I won't say teeth, but tusks. And I, I used to look at these things at Mount Vernon, and I would say, wow, they're incredible. But, you know, I suppose that was the best thing that was available. I, I guess the, a real problem for... Uh, Washington in his latter days was mouth pain caused by his dentures. I think it's probably something that afflicts many people even to this day. But I think one of the concepts is, you know, you had to realize Paul Revere was a, a pretty interesting person. But, you know, one of the things I talk about is this overlay. I teach at Boston University and I teach a history of Boston course. And I talk about the North End as a place that most people perceive of as an Italian-American neighborhood. But, you know, the funny thing is, they were immigrants even in the 17th and 18th century. Many of them were Puritans that had come from England seeking religious freedom. But Paul Revere's family were French, and they were Huguenots. And one of the aspects was, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, all Protestants had to leave France if they didn't accept Roman Catholicism. So the Huguenots were a dysphoria that went all over Western Europe, and of course, the New World. And Apollos Revois from France came to Boston. And Apollos Revois was the father of Paul Revere. Huh. Now, Paul Revere Jr. was baptized as Apollos Revois. He was indicative of that overlay of immigration. So Paul Revere, the Paul Revere we know, was born Apollos uh, Revois. Yes. So it's a fascinating. <laughs> right there glimpse. is worth the price of admission, right there. Exactly, and I, you know, when people look at his house, which still stands, which is the oldest house in downtown Boston, the oldest house in Boston is the Blake House in Dorchester, but the concept is Paul Revere's house in North Square, which was built in 1680. Great example of an early house restored in 1907 by Joseph Everett Chandler. Paul Revere lived there. The last three decades of the 18th century. And he was married. 
had eight children by the first wife, and after she died, he remarried and had eight children by the second wife. And then he lived there with at least seven apprentices at any given time learning the silversmith trade. So I think it was probably a burgeoning household. Yeah. But it was indicative of the artisan class. So when we see his portrait in the Museum of Fine Arts and he's in an artisan smock and a vest and he's holding a teapot with a leather pillow, he's beginning to engrave it, probably with a hatchment of a fairly aristocrat. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Paddock Boston family. You had to realize John Singleton Copley was depicting not a grand gentleman, as in most of his portraits, the people who could afford to have him paint them, but he was painting somebody who he owed a debt to because Paul Revere was a silversmith and a goldsmith, and he would make the frames for the miniatures for John Singleton Copley, many of which are in the museum, and as a result, it was probably a little bit of a tit-for-tat. A little bit of a trade. Yeah. But here you were in the North End, surrounded by water. So you had waterfront. You had projecting wharves into Boston Harbor. And Boston's economy in the 17th and 18th and very early 19th century was a mercantile economy. It was all sea trading, ships, trade, and, of course, all the accoutrements that went from canvas sail-making, rope-making, you know, and you had sailors and you had everything imaginable from royal governors, you know, living in the North End, such as Governor um, uh, Hutchinson, who had a house in Milton as well. But you had these royal governors, the, the various ministers, the well-to-do, the artisan class, and then sailors. So it was something before the revolution that was incredible. But that overlay would continue in the 19th century with immigration to Boston. So when I look at these things and I teach these courses to try to show how many people came to the New World, one seeking you know, religious freedom, another you know, to escape famine and poverty, others seeking social upheaval through revolutions. Everyone was seeking a better life, and each one of them contributed to that evolution, not just of the city, but of that neighborhood. And going back to Washington, as an aside, we were talking right after I mentioned his teeth. I thought, why didn't he? Why didn't Washington just take his teeth out if it was so miserable? Then I realized, as president, you are a public figure. Then I, you know how he didn't really want to be president. He wanted to just go back home and farm. Well, I'm thinking maybe so he could take his teeth out. I, <laughs> but the minute he got back to Mount Vernon, he took those teeth out. I'm sure he did every night anyway. <laughs> we just. Begun, Cops Hill. I want to ask one question about Cops Hill. Just an observation, I guess. The first photo is of Cops Hill, and it's wooden buildings. They are not brick. Correct. And when is this photo from when they were wooden? Well, the wooden houses actually lasted right through to the late 19th, early 20th century. Wow. Don't forget Paul Revere's house is wood. Yeah. 
Now, the North End in the 17th and early part of the 18th century still had wood housing. But, you know, when you had by 1712, when the Pierce Hitchbourne House, which was built in North Square, was built, it was built of brick. It was more urbane. It was something that could preclude that maybe fires would not spread. So North Square had burnt in 1679, and that was the reason Paul Revere's house was rebuilt in 1680. So the concept was not only were they built of wood, but the shingling on the roof was wood. So if you had one spark, dry wood would actually burn quickly. So Boston began to promote the aspect of building in brick. And in the 18th century, it continued. But there were many houses that still survived built of wood, not just in the North End, but the West End, even the South End. When I visited Paul Revere's house, I think I heard them saying, you know, this house was 100 years old when Paul Revere got it. Exactly. Which I think is so cool. It was. He moved in in 1780. He still owned it until about, uh, well, 1770, so it was 90 years old. But the thing was, he still owned it as late as 1800 when he moved to a much more commodious house. And then I had a house in Canton, so (laughs) weekend house. Commodious. I want to give you big points for using the word commodious. Oh, very good. I'm going to adopt, I promise within the next 24 hours, I will seed that into my conversation. Next up, Margie in Quincy. Hi, Margie. Hello. Margie, you're out in Quincy where you have a lot of, everyone has a lot of space. I'm guessing you have a commodious home. Very commodious, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony's been here. I have. Oh, How are you? How are you, Anthony? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Bradley, you asked me to call, so I'm calling. Okay, good. I talked to you last week when you and Anthony were out to dinner. Yes, and you had the big uh, St. Joseph's Feast uh, at your place, oh. right? Well, it's not my place, but I organized it at Barbara Suma's place. Okay, um, and Anthony was there. Tell me about 60, that feast. 14 courses. I know. Oh, my goodness. I'm wow. still full from it. there, and yes. we ate and ate and ate from noon till almost five. Margie, let me ask Anthony, what is that feast all about? Well, the Feast of St. Anth- uh, Joseph's is something that is celebrated March 19th, and the Renaissance Lodge of the Sons of Italy, of which Dean Saluti, Margie's husband, is the president, that has these wonderful events, and they bring people together not just to have dinner, but to share the camaraderie and share the traditions of the St. Joseph Feast. And as Maggi said, 14 courses. I mean, it went the gamut from um, calamari and fusilli that was handmade and pasta with uh, orange rind and uh, breadcrumbs. And there was, you know, all sorts of different fruits and vegetables. Kind of a cross-section of the cuisine of the neighborhood. But it really was. Thank you. Actually, these are special dishes just for that particular holiday. Yes. And it's not something that's on that restaurant's menu during the year. And that was the so funny thing. I thought the, the, the stuffed artichokes, which is something that I don't do too often at home, but you know, <laughs> things of that sort you know, were, were things that people would only enjoy on special occasions. And Barbara Sumer at her restaurant La Suma does a wonderful job, not just for that special occasion, but she does something to really have the traditional foods that one associates with the Italian-American community. Margie, anything else? Some of our friends who are not even Italian... (laughs) 
come to that just because it's such a spectacular day and such wonderful food. We now, have, Anthony, yes. I have one complaint, though. All right. Your books are going to make me fat. <sighs> oh. You know, Why? we invited you to come speak about Howard Johnson, and we had Make Your Own Sundays. And then you did... Uh, a talk about Jordan Marsh, and I, I had to make the blueberry muffin recipe from the book. Yes. And um, but you, you outdid yourself with the Baker chocolate. That yeah. was. Wow. You're so, <laughs> so sweet you, to we, say that. <laughs> what did you guys have with Baker Chocolate Day on Baker Chocolate oh, Day? Oh my goodness! Some Hostess cupcakes. Well, we had for the Sons of Italy. We had this joint um, thing between the Renaissance Lodge and the Quincy Lodge Sons of Italy. We had Make Your Own Sunday. We had brownies. This is food. I mean, we're part of this culture. You cannot come to an event without having something that's not only delicious, but something you look forward to. Well, thank you very much, Absolutely. Margie. Well, it was good talking to you guys. Take care. Likewise. Thank you, Margie. Now it's Vito in Medford, right around the corner. Vito. You know Vito? You yeah. might know Vito. Hey. Possibly. Hey, guys. How are you? Hi, Great. Vito. Hey, Anthony, uh, on your book, uh, my mother's in page 41 and my uncle's in page 81. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, what a thrill when I showed them. I mean, I've had your book for, like, at least 15 years. Vito Aluya? What's that? Are you related to Vito Aluya? Uh, the, the one left of him, Ostuni, Gaspa. Oh, right. That's you know, the clothing store it's... in Burlington, right across from the Cafe Escadrille. Right. I have that here. And what page is your yeah. mother on? Page 41. Now, this is the book that's called Boston's North End. Yes. And those are, photographs, those are photographs that came from Vito Aluya, who is a great mm. advocate on the history of the North End. Mm. And he was raised by my, with my cousin, John Casale. And the cover of the book, Boston's North End, which came out in 1997, oh. actually has a group of young boys playing football at North Square. Oh, right. This book, which I also had translated into Italian, which was called Il North End di Boston, was used as a prototype to try and get people to realize that not everybody speaks English, and some people speak it as a second language. So it would be something that would actually see it being translated into Italian. Anthony has two North End books, by the way. There's the Then and Now book, correct? Correct. And there's the other one. Boston's is, North End. And then I a, have... Is that a Font Hill Press? This is actually Arcadia Arcadia, okay. And that's actually uh, the History Press. And then the other one is Il North End to Boston. But I think the thing is, you know, when you see those things, you say, oh, my mother's on this page or my uncle on this page. That's part of what the history of a neighborhood's all about. We're part of that neighborhood. Our families have contributed to making it something that's not only special and unique, but special to us. You know what's great about I was, uh, Go ahead. I was baptized at a Sacred Heart Church, wow. Anthony. That's nice. You know, it's a shame it's gone, but that's where I was baptized. My grandmother cooked for the priest there for 40 years. Wow. She was the head <laughs> cook. Imagine that. Yeah. And my father, my father that came from body, the only way he could oh, get really? sponsorship was from a mobster. Oh, my goodness. So, Barry, really. It's yeah. so funny because, you know, I look at all these different places. Um, today, on the thread that we were talking about the North End tonight, on Facebook, a lot of people were saying, oh, we're from Avellino. But Avellino is a city, and it has all these various villages. So our family was from Maltafacion, Maltavacano. And oh, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, you know, when I hear these different places, you know, 
it really makes you begin to say, in some ways, Boston has a huge contribution from Italian-Americans. And the North End, you know, by the 20th century was something that was a preponderance. But you had to realize from the 1840s on, it did evolve. And it was our families, our friends, many people have a connection to it. So, you know, people don't realize, you say Sacred Heart Church, there was St. Mary's, and our family was part of St. Leonard's of Port Maurizio. And there were also Jewish temples and shoals. There were Protestant churches. So you had to realize this was really a neighborhood of people of all walks of life. Hey, Anthony, do you remember the original Umberto's? They had the best pizza. I do remember it, but that actually closed quite a while ago. Right, a long time ago. I mean, I was a child, and my father used to take me. He used to go down a flight of stairs. It was a little hole in the wall, but they made the best Sicilian pizza. And you also remember Circle Pizza? Well, I was just going to say that. You know, there was Circle Pizza on Hanover Street that I do remember. It was kind of a hole in the wall, but I used to... I thought it was... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba no purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The nicest pizza. As I say, pizza is not just a snack anymore. Sometimes I enjoy it for dinner if it's well done. But there are times I like it the old-fashioned way, which is a bubbly thing with, I hate to tell you, burnt crust and bubbles. <laughs> Anyone oh, yeah. ever put an egg on it for breakfast? Can you just put an egg on it? You can. Put a bird on it. Most put, people, put an egg on it. Most people in Italy didn't. All right. They might, my vote for bakery modern all the way. Everybody goes, anybody know. who knows they what they're talking the about. Cannolis, <laughs> at least cannolis. They did. You know, I, I, I go with modern. Anthony and I went there the other day. What did you get, Anthony? You got some cookies, right? All right. Well, Thursday night I got the um, um, puttagini, and I also got some um, chocolate which was not Italian, really, but it was a chocolate mercatha pie. But on Sunday, I picked up the St. Joseph's Zapolis to bring Zapolis. home. I actually walked through there today and, realized, and and noticed they have what they call Hostess Cupcakes, which look like they do Hostess Cupcakes, only the super deluxe, gourmet, awesome, shiny, gooey version of them. But, you know, it's a fun thing to go to the various bakeries and look, and it's not just sweets, but you have savory, you have biscotti, and you have the sesame seed cookies. There are all sorts of different things, but they don't always appeal to everyone. So there are some bakeries like Mike's, which actually have a huge tourist attraction because the publicity says this is the Italian-American bakery. Our family always went to Morden, and I think one of the things was it was something that was really quite fun. You know, Mike's gets a hard time because they're so popular, so everybody wants to diss them. Truth be told, they're perfectly fine. And I had a rum baba there, which I thought was fantastic. I bet you did. <laughs> Thank you very much, Vito. We heard the European restaurant mentioned as a favorite. Many fond memories there. And that's gone now, and that was... I'm understanding it's where Lucas is now on Hanover on Street. On Hanover Street, right. I'm going to go look at that with new 
New eyes. Yeah, but the European, it was really an all-service restaurant. It wasn't just pizza, but they made the one, most wonderful parmigianas and the most wonderful soups and things of that sort. And the surprising thing is the sign that once actually hung over the doorway yeah. is now on display on the Rose Kennedy Greenway. And they have this wonderful signage display for, I gather, for the winter and spring. And the European is there and it's lit up. I mean, these are such fun things. So I'm, I'm researching as you talk. It, it was 218 Hanover Street, 1970. And now you, the sign is where on the Greenway? Where can you see it? Well, it's roughly across from Rose Wharf. Um, Does it just exist by itself? Some hanging. Oh up? no, they have a whole bunch of different signages. Oh, for, I don't know where this is. Businesses. I got to see that on the Rose Kennedy Greenway. It's another way to get people to look at public art. I mean, is a neon sign public art? And I think it's something that's really quite wonderful. I always advocate that sometimes. You know, buildings that have this type of thing, such as a neon sign, should have it restored. And I think that this part of our North End history, which the European was a major part of from, I believe, the 1920s right up until 1997, not only am I happy that the sign actually survived, but I'm surprised that it's been restored and is in usable condition. But one of the other things about the North End that I'm always fascinated with is that the things that we enjoy today also have a derivative from the North End. Now, I don't know about anybody who's listening that enjoys Prince Macaroni, Mm. but Prince Macaroni, which was something that was purported to be the dinner on Wednesdays, and of course, Anthony Martinetti, He's no relation to us, but the thing is, he's his name is Martin, yet he's not part of the Martin Reddy liquor family. But the idea was um, he would actually be running home, and of course, Wednesday was Prince Spaghetti Day. So in the period of the early part of the 20th century, Prince Macaroni Company, which was founded by Michael LaMarca, Joseph Scamaranara, and of course, Michael Cantella, was something that was founded on Prince Street in Boston's North End. And Prince made a super fine macaroni in the Italian style, and it was one of three different macaroni manufacturers just in the North End in the 20th century. There was Margarina, and then there was, of course, the uh, Boston Macaroni Company. And these were three major manufacturers of macaroni. So in a lot of ways, I don't know about your listeners, but I quite enjoy um, a dish of macaroni or fusilli or ziti. I think these are the type of things in a lot of ways that, you know, we begin to realize in some ways they become mainstream foods. And mainstream foods sometimes will go the gamut from whatever that neighborhood is. But everything here actually evolved from the North End. So in that period of the early part of the 20th century, you also had to say, the hay market <laughs> was something that not only derived from the 17th century market. I mean, remember, we were a market town. Boston was a market town until 1822 when it became a city. But there'd be a market, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, you know, meats, poultry, fish. And the first, quote, supermarket in Boston was, of course, Quincy Market. Uh-huh. 
And in the North End, right through to the very present, you have all these different specialty markets that, you know, not only serve fresh fruits and vegetables and, of course, all the things that we use on a daily basis, but on Friday nights and Saturdays, we have the hay market. And the North End is a place that you can go for bargains and it goes the gamut. And it's something that you can find you know, out-of-season fruit as well as the most wonderful things such as citrus fruits and bananas and pineapples even in the middle of January, February, and March. So I think sometimes the hay market is something that's a place where many people go not only to experience what our grandparents and great-grandparents had but even what the Puritans had in the 17th century. You know, there's been a change, though, over there recently. When I first started working here, right off the bat, I, would, I got out of work at 5 and would go there to try to get stuff first because they were just setting up. Right. And now I notice they're setting up the night before. On Thursday? Yes. Yeah. Wow. I, I believe so. Well, they must have a variance from the city Unless, of Boston. Uh, maybe I'm confused. Maybe I went there on Friday night, but... That was my impression. Now you're making me... No, now I am doubting myself, but I'll double-check that. Well, my office was on State Street. I used to, on Friday afternoons, go over there, and I would always be surprised. I mean, it was something that, you know, it was the most wonderful things for just a few dollars. Of course, if you were my age, of course, a few dollars was a lot of money in the 1970s and 1980s. But the idea was you could actually get some wonderful things, and... Just within walking distance, there was everything from imported cheese and, you know, wonderful meats, but prepared foods as well. But the breads and pastries, as well as the hay market, it was a place that people did go. So it was a wonderful place and still is. You know, you like your food. There's that, I, mean, I mentioned Monica's. You can get cheese there. They have the truffle-infused cheese. Yeah. What's the good kind of that called? Is there a brand, a particular brand or type? Not truffle infused um i would just basically say it was that but i don't think it has a name per okay se. quick picture in anthony's book is the picture of looks like ted kennedy at the north end branch library right and built in 65 now is that the one that's still the library there on parmenta street now the other night um i had a few minutes on thursday and i popped in there to read the local newspapers including the post gazette which is a wonderful italian you know, American community newspaper that talks about a lot of the North End. But they've recently restored this wonderful marble bust of Christopher Columbus, and the garden has been replanted, beautifully done, beautiful. And, you know, this is a mid-1960s, very modernistic library of the period, but Ted Kennedy came at the behest of Geraldine Herrick, who was in that photograph. She was the branch librarian for the Boston Public Library, and you had to realize this was, again, another one of those major parts of the neighborhood, the library. It was not just a place to borrow books, but it was a community center. There were lectures. There were concerts, just like that goes on today. Many times the Friends of the North End Library have actually supported many of these events. I've lectured there many times. But it's part of that neighborhood. We talked about Cops Hill and we, we did talk about the hay market a little bit. Is there more that we want to talk about that? I mean, it was an actual hay market. Exactly. And it actually sold hay. There was a hay scale in the very center of Hay Market Square. That's now where that very high-rise parking garage is. But, you know, when I was a child, I can remember that parking garage being built and the configuration being changed and everything. 
Yeah, the north end has changed a lot. The surrounding areas especially, especially on the waterfront and then Haymarket Square, but it still is a neighborhood. But you have all these different streets, you know, that you talk about, Salem Street, Hanover Street. And I try to chronicle not just the streets themselves, but how they evolved. You know, uh, the tents and all that have the vegetables in the Haymarket, that's one thing, but there are those buildings where you walk down the steps and you get the hacked up pieces of cow and that's right and the they'll have all kinds of stuff down those stairs and you look at the book it looks the same now along that strip it most certainly does the buildings themselves date to the 19th century some are very early 20th century and you can still see signage on the sides of the buildings kennedy butter and egg but those meat markets and you know poultry markets it's not so much fish but those are things that you can actually get, as you say, at the side of a cow. But especially at, say, holiday season, one might actually get a leg of lamb. So it's quite good. We're with Anthony Samarco. Really enjoying a talk on Boston's North End. Quick question. Today I'm walking by whatever that street is with Union Oyster House. Marshall Street. Marshall Street. And then you have Bell in Hand. Yes. And on the... Chalkboard outside says Bell in Hand, oldest continuously operated pub since 1795. Is that true, really? It is. And one of the funny things is, I mean, they've gone through various guises and everything of that sort, but there was a sign in the 18th century that had a bell in a hand. Yeah. And the funny thing was, because of the illiteracy rate, that was basically a sign that you knew, meet me at the Bell in Hand. Bradley, and let's have a drink. A pictograph. And, I mean, of course, I can't read the street signs because I'm illiterate and see the signage that says, a bell in a hand, I know where I am. Good idea. There were the Green Dragon Inn in the North End. There were all these different pubs where they were a resort. I mean, today, the North End has a lot of these things. I mean, it's become a very food and drink-oriented neighborhood as well. I mean, it always has. But I think some of these places, especially towards what is, you know, um, Marshall Street and the Quincy Market area, have all these places that have evolved. But Bell in Hand is one of the oldest. Yeah. Marshall Street is a really good-looking street. It has, yes. doesn't it have the Holocaust Memorial on one side? Exactly. And there are a row of maybe four Five pubs. And a couple of those look really authentic, uh, like they do in Dublin. But those buildings themselves, again, are all 19th century buildings. But you had to look closer, too, because Marshall Street also has one of the most important parts of the entire city, which is the mileage stone. The Boston stone itself was something that was a circular ball. It was actually limestone. And it was a painter's trough. And it was actually the mark of the center of the city of Boston and every street in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts radiates from that. So that's the ground zero for the city of Boston, Marshall Street. So when I was a child, we'd always walk down Marshall Street. I mean, the Union Oyster House, we'd wave to the man who shucked the oysters. We'd go down past Bell and Hand, we'd see the New Deal. And when I was a very young child, it was Leonard's Shoe Shop, which is now a building which is an attorney's office. But that is one of the oldest buildings in that area. 
it was where John Hancock's brother, Ebenezer Hancock, had lived. And that's a building that dated probably to 1780, 1785, maybe a little bit earlier. But the idea was that the building itself was the oldest shoe shop in all of Boston's history until the 1970s when it closed. The Bell and Hand is perfectly fine. It is my wish, though, if I had my druthers, as they say, I wish the interior of the Bell and Hand would be more period correct. I, whatever it looked like then, I wish there was some roughly hewn furniture. Uh, you know, it's kind of a college looking place in there now. And I, I, it is in a way, but I, I think, wish it were. Wouldn't you know. that be fun to actually have an 18th century pub in Boston that did have these places? And they're not too hard to recreate, but I think sometimes you have to realize that the public is looking for comfort too. Many of them are tourists. They're coming and they want to sit down and have a cool libation. Yeah. And these are places that, you know, lend ambiance and, you know, comfort. But I, I agree with you. I would love to see a place that not only was an 18th century tavern, but I'd also like to see an Italian cantina that actually recreated the things that I remember back in the 1950s and 60s that are, again, something different. These are you, things... have the, you have the clout to make that happen, I feel like. Oh, my gosh. And hey. since if we're going to be wishing, I would also wish for a pub that really looks like an Irish pub in that it has, it has wainscoting, but it has banquettes, and it has a peat fireplace. Oh, how lovely, yeah. Wouldn't that be something? Yes. A place you could take your dog into, like a, an Irish, a true Irish pub, hang out and watch, read the paper and have your dog and have your pint. Maybe the family would hang around there. Uh, well, that's, I don't know if you could do that because the laws are different, but that's the dream. Well, I've always thought a fireplace in a pub or a restaurant is something that's very charming. It's not only warming, but it's it creates an ambiance that is really quite nice. Nice, large. A commodious fireplace? Commodious. Is that, can you yes. use that with fireplace? Could, could we have little settles on either side if it's a large <laughs> enough that we could have our drink as the fire burns at our feet? Yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, that sounds good. It does. It does. That's what the North End has always been about. I mean, it evolves. Who knows? In the next 50 years, it might be something of that sort. What are some of your favorite photographs in Boston's North End then and now, the Anthony Mitchell Samarco book? Well, you know... It's funny. When I think of North Square, it's not just the Paul Revere House. And everybody knows it. I mean, if one attended Boston Public Schools, I think it's the fifth grade does a community uh, bus tour of not only the Constitution, but Paul Revere's house and things of that sort. So we see the sanitized version. It's the restored house of Paul Revere. But in the latter part of the 19th and early 20th century, that was actually the Gauduti Cigar Factory and the Banca Italiana. So you had to realize that this was the former home of Paul Revere that had now become a commercial bank and a cigar factory. So That, that Banca, Banca Italiana? Yes. Okay. So here was this Italian bank where the preponderance of the neighborhood probably spoke Italian or at least a dialect of Italian. And then they were there, but on the other side of North Square, which is now where Mama Maria's is, is a place that was the Banca Ettore Fiori, which was the Italian credit union. So you could wire money to family and friends in Italy. So you had not just a residential neighborhood, 
row houses converted to apartments, tenement apartment buildings, but you had the remnants of Paul Revere's house, which was now a cigar factory and a bank. This picture is fascinating because it seems like the surrounding buildings, are they gone? Not all of them. No? Well, the one called the Angelo that was just to the left is. Yeah. That's now the entrance to the Paul Revere House Museum. Okay. But the Angelo was a four-story tenement apartment building. And you had to realize these buildings in the latter part of the 19th century were built, you know, cheek by jowl with wood frame buildings, other brick row houses that had now been converted into apartments. Then you had the Pierce Hitchborn House, which is also a 1712 house, one of the um, very attractive brick houses that still survives. So you had these buildings that were creating an urban neighborhood for what was becoming in some ways a neighborhood of people who came from primarily an agrarian culture. Many of the people who were coming to the New World were not necessarily urban dwellers in their country of origin. Many of them were of, you know, agrarian or rural derivation. So here you have them living, you know, cheek by jowl in tenement apartment buildings. You had to realize each floor had a toilet. There was no bathroom. So the city of Boston began to develop what were called the baths. So today we have you know, the L Street Bathhouse in South Boston. It's a great remnant of what was once in the 19th century a major feature for the hygienic aspect for residents. But the North End had baths. So, you know, not just the North End, the West End, the South End, East Boston, Dorchester, South Boston. These were things that were important because earlier houses didn't have what we take for granted. Well, one of the things I wanted to say, too, is, you know, when you talk about, you know, education, the church and everything of that sort, there was one man that came from the North End, John D. Ferrari, and he was somebody who actually had started off as a fruit peddler. He and his father peddled fruit throughout the city. He reinvested in real estate. And one of the funny things was he used the Boston Public Library not only to read the Wall Street Journal, but the stock page. By the period of the 1940s and 1950s, this man who was terribly frugal would give a million dollars to the Boston Public Library. He lived in the North End. He lived in the flat that his parents had had. And eventually he gave further property. And John D. Ferrari came from the North End but gave back to the city so much that today they have a wonderful monument to him at the Boston Public Library at Copley Square. Many people that do derive from the North End that actually have family roots have made not only local but nationally important things. So whether it is Rose Kennedy that was born and raised there or Honey Fitz, her father, who was to become mayor of the city of Boston, John D. Ferrari, who actually gave back as a philanthropist or you know, very many, many other people. I could go on infinitum with these three books. But the whole idea is, you know, it is a neighborhood and it's constantly evolving. It's a thriving nexus of cultures, each one of us who contribute to it. So, Anthony, uh, you can get these, you can get your books on Amazon, of course, yes. and you can get them in the bookstores too. Any, any major bookstore, Barnes & Noble or, you know, local bookstores. And I always want to give a shout out to I Am Books, which is in Boston's North End. They do have the books on the North End. That's cool. 
And you have about 80. What are some of your favorites? Give, just to give folks an idea of some other books they could get. Well, one of the ones that I absolutely love is Christmas Traditions in Boston. It came out about a year uh, about a year ago, and it was something that was actually how it chronicles the celebration of Boston in you know, the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. And it went the gamut from Louis Prang cards as well as the Enchanted Village of St. Nicholas. But I also liked a book that I had written on Jordan Marsh. You know, it's a department store that many of us of a certain age do remember. But it was also something that was the first department store, uh, 224 departments under one roof. These books that go the gamut from the history of the Baker Chocolate Company, the history of Howard Johnson's, as well as the Neighborhood series, kind of anchor our local history base and make it more accessible to people of all walks of life. I love the S.S. Pierce book, too. That book is almost finished, and I'm getting to the point. I'm doing photograph uh, captions right now, and it's a fascinating book. You can get such an idea of a period by looking at the stuff they sold during that period. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Everybody, thanks for uh, being with us, and I hope you enjoyed our visit from Anthony Samarco about his book, Boston's North End. That was another Jay Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.